I'm going to do something this morning that I have, this is the second time I've done this in all these years. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read my sermon to you. Uh, I've been flat on my back all this last week. It had something that, I don't know, if it had something to do with um, the Patriots Day Parade or not. <laughs> I marched with my Rotary brothers and sisters. It was nearly after all the walking around. I had my Fitbit on and about three miles. We ended up, first time ever, in, uh, I've ever gone in the front door of the Marine Room. I had a beer, it was nice, and I went home, and by Sunday afternoon, I was flat on my back with fever and chills, and uh, I had contracted a virus of some type. So, um, I'm, I won't touch you if you don't want to touch me. <laughs> I don't think I'm contagious, my temperature is down to normal. I went through all the night sweats and, and all of that, and uh, I'm just grateful to be here this morning. I've been debating all this week whether or not I ought to even try this, but I wanted to so much because, um, because of the text and because of you and because it's good for me to get out. If you know me, I do not do well uh, being in bed, as my wife can testify, and uh, she was very much interested in me being out today. So, okay, let me read to you the text from um, Matthew. This is one of the great texts um, of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the fourth in a series of um, teachings of Jesus. And this time, it is about the church. And life together in fellowship in the church. The Gospel of Matthew is the only gospel that uses the word church in it. And uh, that ought to set off all the alarms within our minds as we, as we think about the nature and of, of the church and its fellowship. In particular, the issue that Jesus is dealing with in the church, that is the imperfection of the church. And that was another reason that I needed to sit down this morning. I felt like that this is a sermon that needs to be more, maybe less of a sermon and more of a living room conversation with you about the nature of the church and our life together. Next week, I'll be back on my feet, God willing. Matthew 18, verse 15. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, 
let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. And then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused, and then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord of all that had taken place. And then the Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debts. Though my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the Bible is not naive about the issues of human nature. Neither, neither should we be. From the beginning, sin captured the human heart in its depths. The misuse of human freedom, the lack of trust, the self-exalting pride of an ego out of control, the self-centered, self-aggrandizing desires of the human heart, and the rebellious law-breaking will all revealed that the long journey of healing sin would be painful and never complete in this life for either the individual sinner or for the fellowship of the church. This is simply reality that we live with. And Jesus knew this because he knew his Bible. 
He knew the story of the fall of Adam and Eve and in them all of human history. He understood Israel's long history of disobedience, of their constant complaining and the long journey toward the promised land. He believed in Israel's promise. The representatives of his ancestral line, King David, when he seemed to have it all together, broke the Ten Commandments and brought chaos on his family and upon the nation. Nathan confronted the king of his sin, and David repented, and he was forgiven and restored. But the wreckage of his life became evident for all to see. In my visits with my aging mother, she would from time to time ask me why well-known pastors often betrayed their vows of ordination in sexual misconduct or in stealing money from the church. She would give me that look that said, don't you ever dare do that. As a kid growing up, I knew it was not in my interest to act out. My parents would be swift in their discipline. I could not have faced my mom's tears and my dad's anger. The histories of the kings of Israel and Judah are filled with stories of idolatry, worship of other gods, immorality, injustice, false theology that promised blessings that turned sour under God's judgments. Jesus himself was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin to the end. Nevertheless, the evil one released every dart and arrow he could to lead Jesus astray. Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus promised that he would build his church on that confession. But in just a few moments, Peter revealed that he had absolutely no idea of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And Jesus confronted him. After Peter said, God forbid this will never happen to you, that you cannot be a suffering Messiah, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like men and not God. At the Last Supper, the disciples revealed they were following Jesus out of their own self-interest, debating amongst themselves which one of them was the, was the greatest. And, and who could who ought to sit at the left and the right of his throne in his heavenly kingdom when he came. Well, Jesus was not naive about the power of sin. Peter ended up denying three times that he'd ever known Jesus. Amazingly, in John 21, Jesus gave Peter a threefold opportunity to be restored. And Jesus forgave him. He transformed his guilt and shame into the wholeness that only grace can give. What Jesus was teaching was that only forgiveness can launch and sustain a church, that a church without forgiveness and grace within it is not a church. It may be a moral society of some type, 
It may be a happy fellowship of some type. It may do good works, but what defines the church as it really is is that it lives by the forgiveness of sins even as each individual. And so the Apostle Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus by the living Christ. It was there that the grace of God's mercy began to overflow for him. Later he confessed, I, was, I had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, a man of violence, but the mercy of God simply overflowed toward me. And my life in grace became a model for the church's own self-understanding. Paul never let the, the church know, forget that. He was a forgiven sinner. Did he become a perfect man? Not at all. He was what he knew all disciples and church members were and are, both saints and sinners at the same time. And that is one of the complexing things that we deal with as we think about the church. His own life story modeled what Jesus was doing in the life of the nations through the church. But it was a church that had to struggle with its own continuing disobedience, lack of trust, and inability to live in community with other disciples. And so it's not a surprise to see Jesus speaking as he does to his disciples about their life together in the church. He, he's saying to them, if another member of the church sins against you, imagine that. You ever been sinned against by a brother or sister in the church? I thought we'd eliminated sin within the church. Well, communicate it to the brother who's hurt you. And if he doesn't listen to you, take a couple of three witnesses with you and go back to him. And if he still will not listen, take it to the whole church in a congregational meeting. And if he still will not listen, then he's become tax collector, a Gentile, He's ostracized himself or herself from the church. He said, this is what Jesus was saying. The church has a responsibility toward its members to help them grow up into spiritual maturity and to learn through their dependence upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God to say no to sin and to the love of God and to the love of their neighbors as themselves. It was not then an afterthought that the Presbyterian Church USA included in its constitution a book of discipline. And that's not been a very happy word in our world or in the church. Discipline? Its purpose was to spell out the theology of God's grace in a community of disciples who remain saints and sinners at the same time. Yes, a community of believers who were diverse in worldviews and each having the line of sin running through their hearts. If there has been anything that has characterized the church in all centuries, not just the Presbyterian church, 
But the church in all forms, it is conflict. Conflict deeply rooted in human nature and social experience. The church discovered that it needed a book of discipline for beautiful, gifted, fallen, conflicted community of disciples who needed reconciliation, understanding, compassion, restoration, and commitment to the long journey of discipleship together. After all, this is what Jesus called us to. But he did not deny the difficulty of life together. So Jesus asked his disciples, if another member of the church sins against you, what are you to do? I don't want to sin against one of you. Nor say anything that would be hurtful. And I know you feel the same way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus suggested that it was easy to see sin in someone else's life and not in your own. And this has been always one of the very troubling statements of Jesus. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. The relevance not just for the church, but for every family relationship and marriage, parenting, and all of that. So this warning is always call me up short. When I was in my high school years, I said something about my sister's dating behaviors to another girl who was, my, who was a friend of my sister's and of mine. Well, what do you do in West Texas on a date? You don't park and neck and all of that. Well, the girl in turn told my sister, who felt judged by me and was very upset, and she had every right to be. Our mother did, as she had been doing for years as we had our fights, brother-sister kind of things. We learned very well from mom and dad how to fight. But she was a master. She got us into the same room, made us look at each other, sit in a chair across from each other. And oh, I hated that. I cried. I did my sister. I apologized. And used the oldest excuse humanity has ever used. Just beginning to attend church a little bit. Confess to my sister that it was the devil that made me do that. <laughs> I didn't realize then I was living right out of Genesis 3. The woman that gave, you gave to me that caused me to do that. I mean, the whole issue was not much of an issue of all, really. Just kind of a 
for whatever reason, conflict between brother and sister. But I lamented. I made amends to my sister and asked forgiveness. And all was made well. But that memory has haunted me. I've never wanted to be caught in a public sin to have to own up to it. Nor was I really interested in secret sins. I learned years ago that we're only as sick as our secrets. The greatest gift we can give ourselves and others is to bring our lives to the light and let people know us. I've been installed as pastor here for two or three years, and one of the great issues of this church at that particular time is that we were the sponsor of a YMCA employment center where a lot of our homeless folks hung out, and the folks that ran the office were about in the same category. And it became problematic for us and we thought that maybe drugs were being passed by the runner of the, of the organization. And so they moved out of the church. And Years later, I got a telephone call one day from the woman who was running that. She said, you know, I, needed, I realize I'm in the 12-step program of AA. And the fourth step is that we have to do a serious moral inventory of ourselves. And in doing mine, I remembered how I sinned against the church by selling drugs out of your facility and denying it at the time. That was a powerful learning experience. The only thing that saves us from self-righteousness is the capacity to work our own inventory on ourselves and to stop making inventories for everyone else. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. In many ways, the Presbyterian Church USA has been a father and a mother to me. Right out of the chute after seminary, and freshly ordained, perfected, and ready to save the church, I found myself within a year and a half the subject of a church investigation of my failed marriage, right out of the book of discipline. Actually, I had requested But that happened. That group of wise pastors and lay leaders evaluated what had happened and made a recommendation to the Los Angeles Presbytery that my status as a pastor in the Peace USA ought not to be changed. Presbytery affirmed the recommendation and wrote it into its minutes. And it was an it was a disciplinary work of the church that invited me to self-disclose to tell the story as truthfully as I could. I had contributed to the failure in ways I had not understood and was not even able to confess. 
They extended forgiveness, mercy, grace to me. For the first time, after years of studying about grace, the rubber hit the road for me in my experience of mercy through the church. That's why I have always loved the Presbyterian Church USA. It gave me back my life. And I would not want to do anything to damage it. What happened was that the next 50 plus years of ministry have developed. I'm so grateful for that. You see, the words of Jesus about working toward the healing of life by the grace of God have guided, informed, and empowered my life. In these recent years, a whole new dimension of of our need for mercy has opened up before me and before the church. I've discovered that churches, congregations, can sin against the larger church and that the larger church may fail in relationship to presbyteries, congregation, and individuals. Someone said to me, Yesterday at the Presbytery meeting, after we released another of our congregations, well, the whole problem anyway is the General Assembly, isn't it? They keep doing those horrible things. And I thought to myself, the problem of the General Assembly, that's our problem, it's not the General Assembly. Our problem is us. We have not cut yet come to terms with what it means to be human to be broken, to be the recipients of grace and forgiveness. But this is what we confront in our presbytery, and we're working through a long disciplinary process that will not soon be over. The larger church is divided deeply, and some of our brothers and sisters have made judgments about either the national church or about the local church and its members that are not warranted or perhaps only partially true. We sinned against each other in the name of God. We've borne false witness without evidence to back it up. And there's a mean-spiritedness that has swept both culture and church. And if you know me, I have always tried to be a reconciler, an agent ambassador of Christ that could call people to the table of reconciliation and healing where we could learn to talk together about the things that really trouble us as a people. After the Thursday night Presbytery meeting a couple of weeks ago, a pastor came up to me and said I had hit him below the belt by what I had said. As fast as I could, by email, I tried to explain myself to him. My words were not meant to hit him at all. I reminded him that we are brothers in Christ, saved by God's mercies, forgiven and called to a higher way. I asked forgiveness if I had hurt him. Tragedy for me is that he did not respond to my email of invitation. I've learned that I have to 
let go of this or it will eat me alive. So Peter began to get the drift of what was going on in Jesus' instructions, and he became threatened and nervous. Are there no boundaries for forgiveness? How often should I forgive a brother if he sins against me? Seven times? Not seven times, Jesus said. Seventy plus seven. And he went on to tell this wonderful parable of the theology of forgiveness that the church needs to relearn about the man who was settling accounts who called in his accounts, his financial accounts, and the first one on the list, the greatest debtor he had, said, pay me what you owe me, and if you don't do so, I'm going to throw you and your family into prison. Debtor's prison. The man fell to his knees and pleaded for mercy, said, give me time, be patient with me, I'll repay everything. And the man looked on him with pity, with compassion, and he forgave the whole debt. And the men went outside, having been forgiven by the, his creditor, and saw someone who owed him a couple of bucks, and he said, pay me what you, what you owe me. And if you don't, I'm throwing you in debtor's prison. The man pleaded for mercy, but there was no mercy. He threw his whole family in the debtor's prison. And when word got back, to the forgiving, compassionate creditor. He called the man in again, put him in prison until he had paid his last. The point of that whole parable was this, that if you're the recipient of the mercies of God, and if the mercy of God in your life does not lead you to give what you have received and to do exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians, then you've missed the point of what it means to be a forgiven person. How much we need to live that out. Our nation and our churches stand at the crossroads. That's another reason I needed to sit down. Our politicians of both parties, to one degree or another, have conducted campaigns that have become an embarrassment for the nation in the eyes of the world. Things that they have said about each other and the spirit of ugliness, one wonders whether they're Democrats or Republicans if they'll ever be able to back off and start again and have a rational discussion about the great substantive issues of our nation. I'm not asking you to agree with me this morning. I'm just telling you what I think. You have every right to disagree with your pastor. But the tragedy is that this cultural poison has infected the churches 
of all denominations and our whole society. In our own presbytery, we are threatened with the loss of civility in our frequent debates. And I myself am tempted and would like nothing more than to blast some of my brothers and sisters off the face of the earth. Ever feel that way? As we move toward Holy Week, we are reminded and invited to sit beneath the cross of Jesus long enough to be touched by the bleeding heart of Jesus. Beneath the cross of Jesus, his tears may fall upon each of us. There God dealt with human sin in the sacrifice of his only son. And who of us can seriously contemplate what we are getting ready to celebrate and not be deeply moved of how great God's compassion is for his beautiful, broken creation of whom he will not let go. There is no enemy that can destroy us. We have seen the enemy, as someone said, and it's ourselves. Every one of us. May God have mercy upon us. And teach us anew about the power of forgiving love to transform the world. If we cannot live that in the church, what hope is there for our nation and the world? So I ask you to pray and to weep over the gifted people on both sides of the aisle who want to do well and who are baffled by the complexity of this troubling world. Pray with me. Lord, there is more going on in each of our hearts than we are aware. And in moments of honesty, we know that the line of sin runs through each heart, including each pastor's heart. So we confess before you this morning that we need your love, that we need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to think through once again what it means to be the people of God living in right relationship with you and with one another and able to hold out to the larger community your grace. So help us. I know that you look upon us this morning and you weep over us and you laugh over us and you are unconditionally committed to us, sinners though we are. Thank you that Peter and Paul got restored and over 2,000 years of history, you've not given up on your church. Do not let us give up. 
keep us hanging on and doing what is necessary, risking ourselves to be the people that you've called us to be. We ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and affirm our faith. The words of the Apostles' Creed. Together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated as we receive our morning offering. Thank you for the gift of your sermon, Jerry. It is by grace that we live, and uh, this morning's offertory is so fitting. Amazing grace. It's an instrumental.
praise you, O God, for the compassionate love that we have seen in our Lord. It's love that will not give up on us. We pray for a greater capacity to love and forgive others as you have loved and forgiven us. We seek as your disciples to be faithful to Christ's call to stewardship that we might be generous and give out of joy and trust in you. We seek and look to your son, Jesus, to understand the way for our lives. We seek your discernment and wisdom through joyful and challenging times that we might see through the fog and be led by your light, your promises, your word. We now lift up the prayer your son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. May we go forth into this world, this troubled, perplexing, beautiful, at times ugly world. May we go forth as the bearers of the light of God's healing grace to share with others what we have received. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.